Hi, this is Michael Glabicki of Rusted Root, and you're listening to the Iron City Rocks podcast. Uh, hey, this is Rich Robinson. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, everybody. This is Drew Emmett from Leftover Salmon. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Welcome to episode 391 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 391, we are joined by uh, two special guests. Uh, we have joining us from the band Leftover Salmon. We have Drew Emmett, who is a vocalist, guitarist, mandolin player, violin player, uh, etc. of the band Leftover Salmon, who have got a great new album out in 2018 that album is called something higher uh, they're going to be in pittsburgh to do a show on october 2nd at the rex theater uh, so we're going to get to them in just a moment and also joining us we have a, another pittsburgher hawk who is involved with the owsley stanley foundation now that may may or may not ring a bell too he was the uh for many years involved with the sound for the grateful dead uh, and the foundation has taken recordings that owsley has done over the years and are basically trying to, to preserve them uh, and save those recordings, some, some fantastic recordings in the, uh, in the vault. And they've released their first one uh, for public consumption, which is a brand new Almond Brothers live album. So we're going to talk to Hawk uh, just a little bit about that project and, and the Almond Brothers release. But first, we're going we're gonna to turn our attention to Drew uh, with Leftover Salmon. As I mentioned, they have a new album out. They're going to be doing a show in Pittsburgh. So let's give you a little taste of leftover salmon. Let's play Show Me Something Higher. We'll get into that interview with Drew. I'm feeling no pain at all. 
Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to the show from Leftover Salmon. We have Drew Emmett on the line. How you doing, Drew? Excellent. How are you today? Doing very, very well. You guys have um, just released a new album this year. You are coming into our fine city of Pittsburgh uh, on uh, Tuesday to do a show at the Rex on the 2nd of October. Um, can you just give folks that may have not have seen you, you know, you know, might see a picture of you guys, 
you see acoustic guitars and keyboards, drums, banjos. What exactly it is you guys, you know, how do you classify your music? Well, we like to call it polyethnic Cajun slam grass, um, huh. which is a moniker our guitar player and uh, the other singer in our band, Vince Herman, came up with, who is from Pittsburgh, by the way. <coughs> Hometown boy. Excellent. Um, but basically... We uh, we take a lot of roots music and mix it in with rock and roll and and uh, pretty much everything we can think of. A lot of original tunes and uh, you know we kind of started out as a bluegrass band and then uh, got um, electric instruments and so we're kind of an electric acoustic kind of uh, bluegrass rock calypso Cajun zydeco kind of band <laughs> all right everything outside of thrash metal it sounds like um exactly <laughs> do you um do you find and, and i see you know in, in definitions of your or in description of your bands people refer to it as jam band do you do you feel like the band fits into that niche of, of the jam bands with the string cheese and fish and things like that or, or how do you feel about that well, the way I feel about the jam band moniker is that it's a very broad palette. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's cool about the jam band world is that it goes everywhere from Wood Brothers and Tedeschi Trucks to Moe and Oakley's McGee and String mm-hmm. Cheese and Fish and Panic. And um, even uh, I think the Delma Curry band is kind of <laughs> sort of part of the jam band world as sure. well. Bands like the String Dusters and Green Sky Bluegrass. And, uh, you know, I think we were probably lean more towards, uh, the song oriented, uh, maybe a little more Americana side of, okay. the, of the jam band world. Um, but, uh, like I said, the jam band world is, is, is a very broad, uh, world of, of bands. And that's what's you're, so great to be a part of it. You're absolutely right. It is sort of, you know, one of those things where, because you like a jam band really gives you no idea if you will like another jam band you know you might so right you might love the almond brothers and and the roots and the blues Mm -hmm. but not necessarily Mm -hmm. find yourself enjoying the grateful dead or you know right that's it's one of the only niches i can think of in rock you know since you know over the last 20 years it seems like everything has got to be compartmentalized um that right. the, yeah. the the name doesn't necessarily indicate you're going to like all of it, and that that's kind of a a neat thing. Now you mentioned Americana, and that's another genre that I, I've noticed growing in popularity over the last ten years. Have you felt kind of you know your audiences grow as a result of that aspect? Absolutely, um, you know, and I feel like we kind of straddle those those two worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we. We do uh, every once in a while. We'll do a tour where we just play acoustic, and we we do what's called a living room. Set. Okay. And we sit down, and we have like lamps and weird paintings and fireplaces and all kinds of stuff on stage with us. Right. And uh, you know, we we draw you know from that um, part of the of the demographic as well. You know, maybe uh, maybe more of a sit down, um, and maybe not so much the the younger. A jam, jam, grass, jam grass crowd and so I just feel like uh, we've been fortunate because we can kind of be in both those worlds mm-hmm. uh, you know the festival worlds as well as uh, you know the touring uh, theaters and, and bars world so um, yeah I feel like um, you know the Americana thing is definitely a big part of what we do as well yeah and it's certainly it's, it's interesting to see that kind of 
you know the, that genre movement i should say maybe growing over mm-hmm. the years has been kind of interesting to watch you know as the yeah. world becomes more and more technical and you know certain areas of music get into more into yeah. technology and another it almost seems like a counter yeah. movement the complete opposite way right. which is Absolutely. really really cool can you talk um you guys released something higher uh this year um can you kind of contrast it from maybe 25 or some of your previous albums I think it's maybe a little more introspective, and um, another aspect of this record is that everyone contributed. Um, even our drummer has a song on this record that he sings, and uh, it's very much a collective effort, and I think because of that, it's, it's a really different record for Leftover Salmon. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a record that reflects that we've been a band for almost 30 years, right. and experiences and and everything that we've gone through and um i think people will find it if they are familiar with leftover salmon they'll definitely find that it's it is a salmon record yet it's it's different and uh it's got some aspects that we haven't really uh delved into before and people that haven't heard leftover salmon before i think will really enjoy it because it it does have uh um it's it's got um some Americana, it's got some bluegrass, it's got some rock and roll, and uh, uh, it's just, I think, for, for my own self, it's a fun record to listen to, it's a great record to put on if you're traveling, mm-hmm. and um, it's just fun, I think it goes some fun places. Now, when you mentioned everybody sings, and that kind of, you know, reminds me of the, you know, maybe back to the Beatles, you know, everyone had a, you know, a share of it, do you guys write these songs collectively, yeah. and then just pick out or, or does everyone kind of bring songs you know and, and throw it in the pot and, and you stir it up and see what comes out on the album how do you approach that a little a little of both I think that there were some tunes that were brought individually that were uh, pretty much uh, done deal and then there were songs that were brought that everybody kind of pitched in on and, and crafted together um, and uh, I think that largely a lot of it came together in the studio and uh, it was definitely everybody putting their two cents in and definitely our producer Steve Berlin from Los Lobos having a big hand in, mm-hmm. in orchestrating and, and uh, helping put the, the tunes together but um, yeah I think that uh, by and large it was definitely uh, everybody uh, uh, getting together and putting their, their thoughts and, and uh, influences into each song now, when you approach a song, I mean, you're you're a multi instrumentalist. Um, you've got Andy on the banjo and Vince also on the guitar. Um, when you're doing a song in the studio, is it important as the band to say, you know, we've got to incorporate because we have a, a you know Andy plays banjo, we need to incorporate banjo in every song. Is that sometimes a challenge, you know, to to incorporate all these instruments and also thinking, okay, we've got to go take this show on the road. And perform these songs, and we only have you know the six of us. How do we incorporate, you know, what you can do in a multi-track studio? Well, I think it just kind of happens um, when we perform. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as the banjo, um, that harkens back for me um, when we first got a record deal many years ago mm-hmm. with Hollywood Records, and uh, their their comment was, "Are there going to be banjos on every <laughs> track?" And we, we thought that was pretty funny. Because uh, yes, indeed, there would be at the time. Um, that the was a dangerous thing, yeah. Very much so. It didn't go over big at first. It, it took yeah. us a while. It took uh, definitely beating down some doors 
sure. musically to get people to accept it. And of course, now there's lots of bands that are doing yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's huge. Um, you know, our original banjo player, Mark Van, was very much uh, a bluegrass banjo player and a rock banjo player. Mm-hmm. He played electric and acoustic, which Andy's doing the same thing. So um, I think that um, it's done a lot for the banjo in particular because. You know, mostly you hear the banjo just in a bluegrass setting, and right. Andy's Andy's definitely taken it to another level, even beyond I think what Mark was doing, which was already amazing. But Andy has, has uh, really furthered that, and uh, he's, in my opinion, really the king of of the rock banjo players. He's he really kills it, and bluegrass. So it's really cool because the the banjo uh, kind of takes on an electric guitar kind of role. Right, um, but obviously, uh, you know, different because it's a banjo. Right. Now, when you're doing the things in the studio, like you, I mentioned, you play several different instruments: the mandolin, guitar, etc. Do you have to give some consideration to that, or do you work on an arrangement when it's time to start rehearsal for a tour? Um, you know, it's not it's not hard and fast because sometimes. I'll end up playing electric mandolin or acoustic mandolin on a song I play guitar on or or vice versa. I like to, because I have all my instruments on stage, you know, and the fiddle, and sometimes I'll just completely switch it up. As far as recording, though, I usually have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to be playing on that on that tune. Okay. But um, what I like about Salmon is that we, we all leave it pretty wide open as to what's going to happen. Uh, when we're touring, but um, yeah, I think it's uh, you know initially it's it's pretty clear uh, you know what's going to be played on what song, um, and I'll write songs specifically for the mandolin and specifically for the guitar. Okay. Now, um, just as your as your own development as a musician, what was your first instrument? You know, my first first instrument was a piano. Okay. I was about three years old, and I played the piano by ear, and then uh, um, I got frustrated with that, especially piano lessons, and I started playing string instruments when I was about eight. Okay. And first first the ukulele, and then I went to the guitar when I was about 10, and then the banjo when I was in my early teens for a while, and then... um, um, then the mandolin when I was about 18, so... And then fiddle when I was in my mid twenties. So, do but, you? Um, does you, in in your brain when you pick those up? And I mean, I'm sure you've been playing them all long enough that you you probably make this without even thinking. But do you have to kind of when you pick up the instrument? Okay, this one's you know because they don't all use the same tunings necessarily. Um, do you have to right. kind of shift gears there? Well, a little bit, um, but you know, as soon as I have that particular instrument in my hands mm-hmm. I you know, pretty much have already adjusted to it but yeah. um, the they're all similar in some ways the yeah. mandolin and, and the guitar definitely have some similarities and obviously the mandolin and the fiddle are the same tunings and the okay. same fingerings um, so you know it's a bit of an emotional or uh, mental adjustment you know to each one um, as I switch but like I said once I get that instrument in my hands I pretty much adjust to it and, just cruise right out Exactly. So, as far as the set, I mean, what what can folks expect 
you know, when you come to town. I mean, you, is, is there a support act for you guys on this tour, or is it, I believe the show starts at 8, is it just you guys, an evening with type of show? I think I think it's an evening with, I'm not certain about that. Um, okay. um, and we do have, we don't usually just pick one support band to tour with us. Uh, okay. A lot of times, um, a lot of times the venue will pick the band and okay. we just kind of go along with it. We're, we're pretty easy going as far as that's concerned. But sometimes we do have a hand in it and we, we pick, you know, some of our friends like Horseshoes and Pan Grenades or, um, mm. uh, uh, who else? The Little Smokies have been, been out with us. Um, we just did a co-build with the String Dusters on Atlanta. Okay. And that was really great. We've definitely done some shows with them and, the McCurries, we've done a lot of shows with uh, Sam Bush. Um, you know, we try to we try to pick bands when we do pick them ourselves that will you know complement what we're doing and, and work well with um, with our audience. So, um, but a lot of times it's just kind of random, to be honest with you. Have you, like, oh, you know, in, in doing festivals, if there have been an act that you guys have been you know shared the stage with, it's just you you're almost scratching your head on who thought to put them on the you know the two of you on the same bill or if you've been on a festival with like a death metal band or anything like that have you ever had any of that kind of experience oh yeah for sure definitely and uh you know i've i have a pretty broad taste in music so i'm Mm. pretty into whatever is good right um no matter what what it is but um Sometimes it's just like, oh wow, this doesn't fit at all. Yeah, <laughs> you just kind of have to go with it. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, is is the yeah. is the set these days is pretty heavy into the something higher album, or is it still kind of a, a career retrospective sort of set? Well, I think this past summer, uh, right after we put the record out in May, I think we were definitely uh, playing all the songs in heavy rotation. Okay. Now we're starting to back off on that a bit and, and go back into the catalog um but we're definitely still playing some stuff from the new record um but not to, not to the degree that we were. were we're trying to mix it up a little more now than, than we were when we first launched the record but um definitely uh at least two or three of those teams would probably end up in the repertoire when we play uh, Drew, do, you, <laughs> do you find that the audience you know you've you got a in in the genre that you guys follow, pretty I think a pretty open minded, or at least the stereotype, a pretty open minded fan base. Do you find it easy to incorporate new music where you know some of the rock acts or some a lot of rock acts really that have been around as long as you find it very difficult to introduce new music into a set? There's almost a a resistance from fans. People go get their beer, go to the bathroom, whatever. Is yeah. it easier for you guys to introduce new material? Absolutely. I think our crowd really thrives on it. And it definitely pushes us to keep coming up with new material. That obviously, people want to hear the stuff they're familiar with and, sure. and the older stuff. But people really do, in, in this culture, people really do love hearing the new stuff, um, which is great. And it's a good motivator to keep writing, for sure. Yeah, that has to be wonderful as a musician. You know, we, we talk to musicians you know, week in and week out at, you know, that fight to get one or maybe two songs in a set from a new album and it can be a fantastic record but it doesn't matter because it wasn't the one that came out in 1992 you know and that's just you know the nature of certain audiences and i've always often wondered in you know in the yeah. circles that you guys 
uh, appeal to, I would think that there would be more welcoming material, and that's fantastic. It's got to be very fun as a musician to have that, you know, audiences yeah, thrive on new material. Well, yeah, Drew, I, I want to thank you again. You guys are in on the second to do a show at the Rex. Tickets still available, yeah. and, and we welcome. Uh, wish you a safe trip into Pittsburgh, man. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you soon. All right, a big thank you to Drew Emmett. Again, Leftover Salmon will be in Pittsburgh at the Rex Theater on October 2nd to do a show, and their new album, Something Higher, is available now. We're going to turn our attention to uh, a Pittsburgher who is involved with a foundation called Owsley Stanley. Owsley Stanley Foundation was uh, is dedicated to preserving recordings done by Owsley Stanley, who was the uh, sound man for the Grateful Dead. Uh, in his work with the Grateful Dead, he recorded many of the other bands who performed with the Grateful Dead, uh, and some of these recordings uh, otherwise lost. Uh, performances and uh, they've resurrected a Allman Brothers album which caught my attention Allman Brothers Fillmore East February 1970 Uh, this is one of the first recordings known of uh, in memory of Elizabeth Reed Uh, this album comprises a few nights worth of performances pieced together and we get into that into the in the conversation about why that is uh, and how these were recorded how they were preserved and how you can get your hands on these recordings uh, I can say from my own personal experience, the Fillmore East uh, in 1970 album is is really a, a, holds up very very well in the Allman Brothers catalog. Uh, it's got an incredible artwork. It's available for under twelve dollars on Amazon, or if you're an audiophile, you can get it in uh, different formats at the Owsley Stanley Foundation website. So, without further ado, let's get into that interview with Hawk of the Owsley Stanley Foundation. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have Hawk on the line with the Owsley Stanley Foundation. How you doing, Hawk? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me, John. It's my pleasure. Um, you and I crossed paths um, just recently. Uh, we had reviewed the latest Allman Brothers release, uh, the Live at the Fillmore East recordings from 1970, uh, and you had contacted me. And, and you're also a fellow Pittsburgher, which is is awesome. Um, can you talk about a little bit about the foundation, how it got started, and what the mission of that is? Sure. Uh, it, it, I don't know how much uh, your audience knows about Owsley Stanley, uh, but Owsley Stanley was uh, uh, an eccentric genius, sound pioneer, um, you know, famous for uh, his involvement with LSD in the 60s, of course. Um, but as part of his uh, uh, pioneering uh, sound technology uh, back in the late 60s, uh, he recorded every artist that appeared on a stage that he built. And so he has this massive archive of incredible two-track tapes um, at a very fertile period uh, in American, modern American music. Sure. And so when he passed away, uh, he basically, uh, before he died, said to his son Starfinder that you know it's his responsibility to try to protect these tapes uh, and make sure that uh, they were, you know, well cared for uh, and could be a lasting treasure for future generations. So we formed this uh, nonprofit, Owsley Stanley Foundation, um, and the whole purpose of it is to uh, raise money to preserve about 1,300 reels of over 80 artists. Um, a lot of it is the Grateful Dead, but mm-hmm. again, there are 80 artists in just about every idiom you can imagine. Um, and so this was uh, this Almond Brothers release was our, our second release. So when when you're going through those um, releases. Um Obviously, you've got to take great care. These are on like magnetic tape. I'm assuming at the, at this point. 
Yeah, they are uh, old reel-to-reel tape, uh, okay. you know, like Ampex reel-to-reels or Sony reel-to-reels. So um, as a whole, do you kind of go through, you know, kind of as quick as you can, because I'm assuming that type of tape would, de- you know, deteriorate over time, just to digitize those and then start to worry about cleaning them up, you know, whatever it is you do. Maybe you could explain a little bit about what you do to those recordings other than just, you know, transferring it from reel to reel to to CD, for example. Yeah, well, that's the the, the primary mission is to preserve them all. As as you noted, the the adhesive on the tape will will come off and mm-hmm. the metallic particles will start to disintegrate and you will actually lose music over time. Uh, the shelf life is expected to be about 50 years on these tapes, so we're coming to the end. Right. Um, and so when we target tapes, we, you know, as we go through the archive, um, we basically look for tape of a certain brand that wasn't as good or known to be as good quality. Uh, okay. If we used it for tape. We would, you know, even if it was in the 70s or the 80s, um, you know, we've seen some of the some of the more damaged tape have been more recent because it's just a cheaper brand or. Right. Um, so we we look for vulnerability in the tape when we're selecting, and then beyond that, we look for um, you know historically significant shows, performances, combinations of musicians. You know, he'll get uh, very unusual pairings of uh, of musicians that happen to be passing through the Bay Area, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, he'll get rehearsals and jams and things like that that um, you know people wouldn't have heard before. Uh, and so we try to target those uh, for priority preservation. And then secondary to that, we look for um, to try to showcase the diversity of the of the archive. Right. So not just every release is going to be Grateful Dead or rock and roll. Uh, we started off with Doc Watson uh, and the bluegrass Americana uh, uh, idiom uh, and then moved to the Allman Brothers. Uh, and then each successive release is going to feature a different type of music. So when you convert that, I mean, can you kind of walk through the the process from you know how it's converted and is it remastered or what? You know, from a technical standpoint, what are you doing from magnetic tape to, you know, putting it on vinyl again or putting it on a CD, MP3, whatever? Can you talk sure, a little bit about uh, that process? Uh, at a very high level, I can because sure. Uh, that that's done by our, our engineer. We use uh, Jeffrey Norman, uh, okay. who's a long-time Grateful Dead uh, engineer, Mockingbird Mastering. Mm-hmm. Um, he does he does a lot of their archive releases. I think pretty much all of their archive releases. Um, and he's one of the guys that Owsley, you know, handpicked and said, you know, I, I like what he does with my tapes. He, he's the guy who should be working with my tapes for as long as he wants to. Right. Um, so we we go to him. Uh, we established a. Um, you know, detailed protocol, you know, working with him to sort of say step one, step two, step three, step four. Um, that protocol was then refined further uh, in, through input from the Grammy Foundation. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we were sort of adhering to the, you know, the finest uh, expected techniques, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with respect to making backups and, and the like. Um, the preservation process is one step. So you basically transfer the tape from anal- from its analog form to digital, then you still have the analog. So that's not sure. going anywhere, hopefully. It'll, it'll decay over time. It's an sure. climate-controlled circumstance, but we're, we're not going to listen to that again. That will never get played again. Mm-hmm. We'd work basically from, from the digital. Um, there is, when we identify uh, something for release, uh, like the Almond Brothers, uh, we'll then take that tape 
and send it to a company called Plangent Processes. Okay. And Plangent will do a special transfer uh, using their patented technique to eliminate what's called wow and flutter, which are subtle timing distortions uh, in the playback transfer mechanism. Right. And what ends up happening is it creates a cleaner sound. Uh, it's it's subtle if you're not an audiophile, uh, but it, it does make a difference. We found, and it's worth the worth the effort, e- extra expense, sure. uh, to, to have them do that to to all of the tapes that we identify for production. Uh, and after that point, they'll be sent to Jeffrey uh, to do a digital mastering. Okay. Uh, on top of that, um, in these archives, have you run across recordings that maybe weren't? I don't want to say salvageable, but maybe not commercially re-releasable um, because of the condition they're in? <laughs> Not because of the condition they're in, uh, sometimes because of the, the performance quality, sometimes because, uh, you know, a lot of times the tapes are cut in the middle. Right. Um, that's the biggest problem that we have is that if Owsley was recording a band that he wasn't familiar with, uh, he'd have to change a reel in the middle of the tune. Um, and, you know, that can be particularly heartbreaking. It'll take you back um, to like, the eight, eight track days and this little click in the middle of Stairway to Heaven. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, except it's, it's often much more dramatic than that. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's just not spliceable. It depends when you realize the tape ran out and had to, and finally got around to changing right. it. Um, because, he, of course, he was also responsible for the house sound and was, you know, that was his primary job with sure. house sound. And he was recording these. I guess I didn't sort of finish this out. He was recording these tapes. Uh, to learn how to be a better sound man, okay. to help continue to push the limits and understand how different venues uh, need to be mixed, um, and so he would take these tapes and he would listen to them and, and consider them, you know, tools in his toolbox or, uh, you know, his diary of each performance that okay. know, he was responsible for. Now, do you know when he recorded these? Were these mics set up throughout the venue for that reason, or were, or was this more of a soundboard type mix? Um, well, he he would bring a two track, and, okay. and he would plug that in, and he would he would mic he would mic the stage basically. Okay, and you know he would have mics everywhere, and his sort of approach to sound is, um, you know, if you don't like the sound, move the mic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's still not good enough, get another mic. Uh, and if you don't like those mics, uh, buy a better mic. And if you can't find one on the market, make it. <laughs> right. Good approach. Um, yeah. Well, it worked worked pretty well. And you know, his approach to miking uh, was was pretty revolutionary. Were the artists aware? Do you know of these recordings being made, or was this kind of an afterthought? You know, I've seen in many shows. You know, in what we do, we kind of pay attention to some of the details. Maybe people don't pay attention, but it wasn't unusual to see somebody recording at the soundboard. You know, at a show. Um, are are you aware, like you know, on some of these nights where the artists this kind of came back as a surprise to them that these were recorded? Um, he would he would usually have a discussion with them at some okay. point, uh, but uh, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, about a lot of that uh, mm-hmm. my, our approach is that whatever the arrangement was with the band if any at all mm-hmm. uh, it was a sacred trust with the understanding that Owsley was using these not for his you know, personal uh, not, not for you know, commercial release but for his personal right. uh, ability to improve himself as a sound man Okay. Uh, which is why a lot of people have trouble understanding well why don't you just throw all this stuff out on the internet right. uh, and our approach is we have to work with each artist 
otherwise we will have violated any trust that was there between Owsley yeah. and the band that you know, put him in that position to take. Owsley was not a bootlegger. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we don't want to be confused uh, right. with a bootlegger. Yeah, and that's that's a great point because I mean, in in a world, you know, if we rewind time back to you know 1960x, 70x, artists weren't necessarily being recorded every night the way they are now. You know, you go to any show anywhere on the planet Earth today, and there's you know 50 people at a minimum with a cell phone recording video audio, um, but you know, I'm sure there weren't that many people you know doing that at an Allman Brothers show in the early days. Um, no, you know, and right. it's considered that they would be released, you know. It, but it's interesting because then you're getting a much, maybe a more organic performance than, you know, the you know, the famous Fillmore piece, for example, where they knew they were being recorded. That may tense certain musicians up. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. It's kind of like when when bands are getting DVDs shot. You don't know if you're getting necessarily the same band you'd see every night because they don't always have cameras in their faces like that. But you know, of course. Nowadays, cell phone cameras notwithstanding, but <laughs> um, have you? No, he. No, uh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, certainly. Go ahead. Oh yeah, he was one of the first uh, to do that. I mean, I think there were other folks like like Frank Zappa famously recorded everything um, mm-hmm. all the time, including conversations. Um, yeah. But uh, but you know he was really a, a pioneer in that regard, and it came from a place that was you know with the Grateful Dead, he w- he would try to have them listen to it, uh, and and so they can you know debrief and, and, and learn about their playing and how to improve right. um, and we've heard and, and read stories where that's been the case and they would go back to the hotel and they'd listen to all these tapes um, you know for, for most other bands he didn't have that opportunity so he, he'd use these for himself to mm-hmm. you know, improve have you gotten any artists and, and names are certainly not necessary but have you approached anyone yet who just said no we don't we don't want those to ever see the light of day thank you for telling yeah. us you know we'll take a copy for ourselves but please don't ever I don't want to see those on the shelf has that happened yet uh touchwood not yet okay touchwood not yet we have we have have had some discussions about the quality of the playing and there mm-hmm. uh, have been discussions where you know, oh, I didn't play that well that that night, or oh, this right. is derivative of something else on the market. Um, but so far, uh, that's at most it's been sort of a, a grumbling, but it's not hampered uh, our production. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got about 19 or 20 projects in the works, and and by say projects, these are are things that we've identified to move beyond just the preservation effort preservation. and look to 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 make them a commercial release. Yeah, and, you know, I think the other thing is, you know, some of these artists aren't here to overdub, you know, and, and that's, it's a cool thing, but, I mean, you realize how much of the live audio market, you know, you, you know, when you go and you plunk down your 25 bucks for a, you know, live double CD, how much of it is from the studio, you know, and yeah. these artists aren't going to have that ability to go back, which makes it really cool in a way. You know, it's yeah, and that's that's part of our, our 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 thing is that we're and this is this is directly from Owsley's vision is mm-hmm. that uh, these are not to be um, overdubbed or mm-hmm. even even you know excessively EQ'd. Um, right. The idea is it should be an accurate reflection of what happened that night on the stage, and that has, in our view, above and beyond the music, an incredible historical significance. You know, right. we discover our 
you know, what, what Frank Zappa again would call conceptual continuity clues. You know, right. we, we see examples of you know, artistic cross-pollination and collaboration and taking an idea that somebody in the Bay Area played on one night and picking that song up in another group someplace else. Or, you know, the influences, the spheres of influences mm -hmm. uh, within that scene are, are, are pretty incredible too. So um, we, we track that kind of stuff to the extent it surfaces uh, in his tapes. Awesome. Well, the Allman Brothers album is available now uh, on CD and in digital download. But I see you have a vinyl, and, and also is mentioning a, a reel-to-reel option of coming down the road. Can you talk about the the reel-to-reel -reel specifically? How that's yeah, done? that's um, uh, you know, Paul Stubblebein is one of the uh, another engineer that Owsley worked with when he was alive, uh, and identified. Uh, he's he's an immense talent, uh, like Jeffrey Norman. Uh, and one of the things that he started was the the tape project. And uh, you know, every year or so, he'll select uh, you know very high quality recordings, again of different idioms, uh, to be released as uh, you know limited edition uh, analog tape. That basically you'll get. He'll do an analog master, uh, you know, to cut the lacquer for the vinyl, and at the same time he'll use that uh, that basically as the as the as the mother. Uh, to okay. the analog tapes that he'll roll off of the mother and then ship uh, under the tape project with really sort of elegant uh, design work and packaging and you know, it just really does a beautiful job for those that have a reel to reel. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't have a reel to reel, it's kind of a cool thing. I know I have eight tracks laying around just because I think it's cool to have them. Um, and I have to say the packaging on this this product looks familiar or fantastic. I, I'm not sure who did the artwork. Off the top of my head, but I mean, you guys, you know, it really jumps when you see that cover artwork. Can you talk about, you know, what goes into the packaging? Sure. Yeah, um, we try to to do uh, all of our releases. We want them to be curated. Uh, we want them to. We want to be able to tell the story. We want to do it sort of the old-fashioned way, where you know, you're, you're, the audience is intended to sit down, open up the liner notes, read them, learn something, and we hope we hope that there was something uh, illuminating in in every one of our our notes. Um, the artist that we used uh, for both the Doc Watson release and the Allman Brothers release is uh, Mike Dubois. Uh, he lived up in, in Woodstock, New York, and uh, he's he's done a lot of work for the Grateful Dead over the years. Uh, he's he's done some work for the Allman Brothers as well, so it was a nice marriage there. And when we talked to the Allman Brothers about design concept, um, they said, "Well, you know, this is this is Owsley Stanley. Let's let's take our mushroom and and psychedelicize it." Yeah. Um, so that was our instruction to Mike was. Take the mushroom and psychedelicize it, so you have, you know, Owsley's, uh lightning bolt. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't mm. uh, maybe don't know that uh, Owsley, uh did the steal your face design, the skull with the lightning bolt that the Grateful Dead uh, okay. used. Um, that the lightning bolt portion of that was designed by him, and it was a way to you know with the red on one side and the blue on the other, it was a way to identify the Grateful Dead's equipment at festivals. You know, very quickly okay. they had a sticker so they could get that. So we've used just the 13-point lightning bolt as a way to reference him in each one of our you know, right. designs. Tip of the so that's the, that's the marriage there of what you're seeing on the cover with the Allman Brothers and, and, and Owsley. That's fantastic. Now, um, I see on, on the website also you've got the digital downloads. You actually have more than one version of the digital of, of some of these tracks, correct? Like Elizabeth Reed, for example. You can get it from each of the three nights of the, the recording. Right. This recording is a is a compilation of mm -hmm. three nights of shows in February 1970, and um, 
we thought this was the best way. The Allman Brothers certainly thought this was the best way to present this um, series of, of, of shows. Mm-hmm. And then for the real, you know, diehards, uh, and and part of our mission as sort of completest to the foundation, we want to put it all out there. Um, you know, ugly tape cuts, <laughs> um, right. fragments of songs. You know, whatever appeared on Owsley's tapes, we thought it as an as an historical artifact uh, should be available. So we mm-hmm. we worked this out where the Allman Brothers very uh, graciously allowed us to do that as digital downloads. And okay. that's what uh, you know, the high-res FLAC files and LAC files. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, the, the, for example, the Mountain Jam that's on the CD, you know, that's mm-hmm. 30-odd minutes or 28 minutes or whatever it was, I see on each of the digital downloads you have incomplete next to each of the three of nights for that. How did you... Is, is What's on the CD kind of a, a blend of those, or, or how did... Yeah, you... it's uh, actually the first first half of it is from February 14th. Okay. Uh, and then we, uh, at the drum solo, right after the drum solo, it's spliced with the end of the Mountain Jam. Okay. February 13th. Okay. So I was uh, trying it in my head. How, how did you do that? You had three incompletes, and that was going to be a hard thing. I assumed you would just lose the end of each of the three, but that's good that it worked out that way. Yeah, no, I, th- I, th- I thought it was a brilliant way to, to marry the two together. And I think that if you listen to the downloads, in addition to comparing the Elizabeth Reads, one of the real treats to me is the Mountain Jam, the second half of the Mountain Jam on February 11th, I think is phenomenal and dramatically mm-hmm. different than the jamming sections of Mountain Jam, uh, you know, the same section, in other right. words, time-wise. It's just right. so dramatically different than the one on the 14th and 13th. Yeah, I think that to me the coolest thing about it was, and I had to kind of do a double take, was Greg's voice on this sounds so different than, you know, I've, I've been listening to a lot of the, um, I believe it was in 2014 they put out, you know, quite a bit of live material, and I've been listening to a lot of that lately, and then went back and listened to yours. I'm like, whoa, this doesn't even sound like the same guy singing in some respects. His voice sounds so much younger and, and you know, I imagine years of singing and smoking and drinking kind of do that to a voice, but it was really neat to hear that. Yeah, um, I mean, he was in his early 20s. Yeah, it was a very, very young band at yeah. the time. So it was and that's what we, we, we wanted to, uh, you know, going back to the design, when you open up the, the gatefold of the CD, mm-hmm. we wanted to make it feel like an old album. Uh, mm-hmm. And when you open up the vinyl and you have that, that image of that, you know, you've got Dickie Betts and Dwayne. Uh, you know, Dickie looks like he's a teenager. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think probably really darn near you were at the time. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's fantastic, Hawk. I want to thank you. Um, are you able to say what's next on the docket, or is it still kind of a kind of a secret at this point as to what we can expect in the future releases? It is. Uh, we're, we're still keeping it under wraps. Okay. Um, but Fair I will I will say this about it: it's coming out in November, the day before okay. Thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, oh. And that it will feature a um, psychedelic performance of A-list artists in a way that you've never heard them before. And awesome. these tapes that we're about to release have never circulated. No bootlegs are known to exist. And it'll be the. In fact, the the songs on it are so fresh. The jams are so fresh and so lost to history that the band had to name them for the first time for this release. So <laughs> it's going to be a miraculous piece of history. 
That's fantastic. So you get a, a new old recording. That's that's fantastic. A new old recording, exactly. That's Thanks, what man. I put in my section of the liner notes. Yeah, that's, that's sort of what really... we love the most. Something historical and new. Uh, well, Hawk, I want to thank you so much. Folks can visit OwsleyStanleyFoundation.org. Uh, I know the CD is available on Amazon now, uh, but you can get all the information on the CD at the Owsley Stanley Foundation. And I want to thank you so much, Hawk, for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, John. All right, Allman Brothers, 1970, the film More East is available now. Uh, that's, as I mentioned, a really cool album. Uh, different than the Live at the Film More East album that, that I think we're all... Uh, come to memorize uh, it's got some really cool uh, recordings of these songs as I mentioned uh, Greg's voice even to me sounds a little bit different in spots probably because they're so young at the time uh, it's fantastic artwork so definitely worth uh, the money to pick up and, and can't wait to see what else they pull out of the Owsley Stanley collection you know what's next you know, it's almost kind of a makes you want to get in there and actually see because it sounds like it might actually be a vault you hear bands talk about having stuff in the vaults all the time but i think this one might actually qualify as a vault um some you know just priceless recordings that uh, are really part of the american music uh, landscape so it's great to see those getting uh, the light of day uh, so you can check that out at owsleystanleyfoundation.org uh, that's owsley's o-w-s-l-e-y stanley like paul stanley foundation.org uh, you can order the cd there you can order the vinyl you could even get the information on getting it on uh, magnetic tape which will be available as we talk about so if you've got a reel-to-reel uh, this might be the one of the only ways i know you can buy new music so check that out as well and don't forget leftover salmon will be in pittsburgh on october 2nd hope you enjoyed that interview uh, you can head over to ironcityrocks.com for links to all these things uh, you can send us uh, feedback. There's a link to contact us on that page. Or you can email us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Also, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, are all forward slash ironcityrocks. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>